0: What does it mean to be human? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by my co-host from Palmerston, North New Zealand, from King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Rideau, the Rev. Ian Reed, And our very special guest this time on the podcast is Carmen Imes, the author of a new InterVarsity Press IVP book called Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. And I quote, Carmen Joy Imes seeks to recover the theologically rich message of the creation narratives, starting in the book of Genesis, as they illuminate what it means to be human. Every human being is created in God's image. Imago Dei is our human identity and God appointed humans to rule on God's behalf." End of quote. Now, Carmen is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University in the States. She's the author of a number of books and is a regular contributor to The Well, a Fellow of Every Voice, and serves on the Advisory Council for the Bible Literacy Conference. And how do you find time, Carmen, to do all this and write books <laughs> as well?
1: <laughs> it's a trick. I I've actually stepped down from that um, from that board of the Bible Literacy Coalition, and I am uh, constantly in a state of reevaluation. What should I be doing with the time God's given me? There's so many opportunities.
0: That's marvelous. Yes, I'm sure you you are using them wisely. Now, uh, I love the opening of your book, where you, you say that reading the Bible is a bit like entering the wardrobe in C.S. Lewis's Narnia. Now, I love that. Why mm. is reading the Bible a bit like entering the wardrobe and indeed a bit like entering Narnia itself, perhaps?
1: Mm. I think because, as as those who have read the Chronicles of Narnia are aware, you can open the wardrobe door and step in and see nothing but coats. And and you reach around, feel around and there's the back of the wardrobe and you haven't gone anywhere special. And other times you can open the door and step inside and you are transported into another world. And I think that Bible readers have this experience. Sometimes the biblical story connects with us in a way that makes that catches us up into it. And we feel like we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. And other times it, it doesn't have any of that sparkle and it feels kind of pedestrian. And we're not really sure what we just did when we read it. And so I think... Um, that the wardrobe provides a great illustration of what it's like to read the Bible because the characters in the Chronicles of Narnia have no control over whether they are transported to Narnia or not. They just have to show up, open the door, and step in and see what happens.
0: So we can't ensure a magical experience when we open Scripture, perhaps?
1: No, we can't, can't ensure. But we can say that when the children do end up in Narnia, that it's not just a place they're visiting as outsiders, but that they're actually part of the story. They find themselves in the story as major players. And that is also true of reading the Bible. This is our story.
0: Yes, it is. Absolutely. And it's the title of this podcast. And uh, we're That's- going to come on and talk about the Imago Day and how, in fact, we are God's image, in a sense. What is the Imago Day, um, Carmen? And how and to what extent are we God's image?
1: Well, that is the question of the hour. And there's been so much debate over the centuries about what is meant by this term image of God. And the the history of interpretation is just full of different takes on it. And, And most of them have tried to attach the image of God to some capacity that humans possess that make us different than animals. And what I try to do in this book is take us back past all of this history of interpretation, back to page one of the Bible, to take a close look at what the Hebrew Bible actually says, and explore what it means, and not import any of our ideas about what it means to be human, and just say, what is this text saying? And what I find when I do that is that, surprisingly, it's very simple. To be God's image is to be physical, to be embodied and the the bodies that we possess enable us to represent God's presence in the world. We're like placeholders for God's presence, and that's at the at the very core of what it means to be the image of God.
0: And that's why uh, you argue creation still matters very much so because we are embodied.
1: Yes, yes and sometimes people treat creation as though it's temporary as though this is the staging ground for some work that God wants to do, the real meaning of which is located in another dimension. And so eventually we're going to cast off these bodies and this whole planet's going to burn and we're going to find ourselves in some spiritual dimension where everything is meaningful. And I think if we take Genesis seriously and if we trace those themes throughout the Bible, we find that the scriptures give us a vision of of humanity and of meaning and of purpose in life that is very much physical and embodied and that it's not a, just a hole to be discarded but that actually we have look we have new creation to look forward to which is a very physical uh, a physical existence on this planet in its restored state with a resurrected Jesus
0: now, Rido, you've often talked to me about this. We've often talked about the importance of our bodyliness, if we can put it like that. Do you want to, mm. um, Rido? Do you want to input here at this point?
2: I think it's something that that has been lost uh, in our kind of modern world. That you know, kind of the embodiment, the importance of embodiment uh, has just been denig- denigrated. And I think along with that, just the understanding of how we fit into the world. Ends mm-hmm. up being and the world itself, you know, kind of its value and and its beauty yep. ends up being de- denigrated. Do, do you think that um, some of that flows out of our eschatology, kind of our understanding of <sighs> where the world is going? Yeah. If it is going, if it is going to end up being burned up, then why would I bother investing right now?
1: Exactly. I think I don't know how things are in New Zealand, but in the states, uh, growing up in a conservative Christian subculture there was very much the sense that those who care too much about the environment are are worried about the wrong thing and that we should worry about our souls and the destiny of our souls and so recycling wasn't something that my community cared about if if somebody was trying to save the spotted owls we kind of made fun of them for you know, barking up the wrong tree. And so I, I think if you believe that this world is going to go up in flames, then yeah, why why invest in it? But my investigation of the scriptures tells me that this world matters. It matters from the very first page of the Bible clear through to the end. And I don't think we can so easily set it aside and say, oh, let's just focus on people's hearts or their minds, what they believe or how they feel. Uh, the physical nature of the of the world matters.
0: Yes, and we're going to get resurrected bodies and live on in a recreated yes. w- world, aren't we? Let's yes. come back let's come back to the very start of scripture as indeed you do in your book. How do you think we can understand the creation account in Genesis and what were humans created to do and be?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Genesis chapter one, first page of the Bible is a battleground of different interpretations about how God made the world or how the world came to be. And what I try to do is ask readers to set aside the question of how long enough to consider why, because I think sometimes we are bringing our modern scientific questions to the Bible and, and that it's, it's good to ask the Bible our questions. We should do that. But if we do it too loudly, we might miss out on what the Bible itself is trying to say to us. And I think what's really clear in Genesis 1 is God is is presenting creation as an ordered world a place where he brought order so that we could flourish and he creates humans as the crown of creation, um, not just so that we can sit back and feel smug that we're better than everything else that God created, but because he's given us a, a vocation of ruling over creation on his behalf. So if we understand our place in creation, then it tells us why we're here, and I think we need to focus more on why are we here? What are we here to do?
0: Did we lose the image of God at the fall?
1: Mm. Many people assume that we have lost it. And it's while well, it's absolutely the case that something was lost at the fall, in Genesis 3 we see lots of problems, and I don't want to minimize the problem of sin, I think it's a mistake for us to conclude that the image itself has been lost. And the reason why is because in Genesis 5, God affirms that he's created humans as his image, and that's after the fall. And then some try to say, oh, uh, in Genesis 5, Seth is the image of Adam instead of the image of God, and so therefore the f- the image of God has been lost. But if you keep turning a few more pages over to Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, God reaffirms to Noah that humans, humankind is the image of God, and that's why we can't just go around murdering each other. We have to value other human lives because humans are God's image, and that convinces me that the image of God has not been lost. Something's been lost, but it's not the image.
0: What does it mean to be
1: God's image? I would say it means to be human it to be God's image is to be human the image of God is our human identity so again I want to separate it from uh, any particular capacity we might have and the reason I feel like that's so important is because as soon as you attach the image to a particular capacity then you have humans that fall all along a spectrum or a sliding scale of their strength in that area and you have humans who are more like God or more the image of God than others. And I don't see scripture giving us any kind of a warrant for treating each other as more or less the image of God. Every human being is the image of God. That is, if you have a human body then you're the image of God, and that means God has called you to rule over creation on his behalf, to be a reminder of his presence, and to to carry out the kind of creative work that he's begun in Genesis 1 and 2. It's like he passes the baton, creator to creation, and we get to participate in God's creative work, and that is fantastic.
2: Yes, indeed. Rito, have you got a question for Carmen? So in some sense it's not something that that's necessarily internal but something who we are as crea- as a created being you kind of that we're like the pictures of god yes. kind of walking around and yes. that in and in when god says in exodus do not make images of me mm-hmm. because I've already, I've already made them you know kind right. of right
1: Ex- <laughs> exactly and and it's it's a different word when god says that in exodus 20 um, not to make images but it's it's this it they're both referring to the same entity so um so in Genesis one God says he's going to make humans as his selim using using the word that's normally used for an idol in Exodus 20 the word the Hebrew word is pestle which is also an idol a physical idol that would go in a temple but it's the focus of that word is on the making of it so it's it makes sense why a different word would be used there because the focus is on the the actually crafting of the the images but yes god doesn't want images of himself because he's already appointed us in that role we our identity is to represent him uh, to the rest of creation.
0: Well, let's come on and deal with uh, some of the rest of God's story and indeed our story and how we mm-hmm. are to grow and behave as images of God. Um, mm. Come on to the wisdom literature because you've got some fascinating chapters on the wisdom literature, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and um, well, Ecclesiastes too, which I absolutely yes. love. I want to ask and you. Yes. and ju- And let's not forget the mighty, the mighty work of Job. No, absolutely. Why is it important to cultivate wisdom as humans, mm. do you think?
1: Mm. Well, I mean if we go back to Genesis 3, it's a quest for knowledge that is what puts humans on the wrong track. Adam and Eve are presented with a choice. They can trust that God is the true source of wisdom and they can they can let him define what is good and what is not good or they can go and try to seize it for themselves and be the, their own arbiters of meaning and of knowledge and of wisdom. And so I think we get the wisdom books, Song of Songs, Proverbs, Job and Ecclesiastes in part as a as an exploration of this human desire for wisdom. What does it look like to pursue wisdom faithfully so that we don't end up repeating what Adam and Eve did in in trying to find wisdom outside of God, but that we lean into what God says is good. And each of those books explores that from a different angle.
0: Mm. What does the Song of Solomon have to teach us about wisdom in mm. sex and relationships? It's un- unusual to find that in some ways it's not, but you might think yeah. that it's unusual to find the Song of Solomon as as a wisdom book.
1: Yes, it's it's a surprising book because in all all of the all of the wisdom books are surprising in that they don't sound very covenantal. There's very little about Israelite history. There's not any talk about Sinai and the law at Sinai and how to live as God's covenant people. And that's why I chose to talk about them in this book because I'm exploring more broadly the question of what it means to be human. So although these books don't use the phrase image of God, it's they're talking about the human predicament. The human condition. And so the Song of Songs is a beautiful exploration of human sexuality. And we see the this sort of dramatic stage play almost of lover and beloved and their desire to be with one another. And the fact that it's in the Bible makes some of us blush because it's almost it's very erotic poetry. And yet it's there to tell us that our human embodiment, including sexual desire, is part of God's design. Part of what it means to be human is to have sexed embodiment, and that produces certain sorts of desires. And so there's all sorts of lessons we can take away from the Song of Songs. Um, but among them, uh, I would say we, we learn that, that sexual intimacy is a gift from God, not something that's shameful and it's meant to be enjoyed within a committed relationship between a man and a woman and and it's mutually pleasurable there's no there's no sense of exploitation or domination or hierarchy in this book it's just this beautiful back and forth with the man and the woman pursuing one another and I think we can learn so much about, um, you know, correcting some of the the um, broken ways that w- that s- our sexuality is expressed today. The, the kinds of um, traumas and the kinds of difficult relation, difficult sexual difficulties in relationship could be healed if we if we brought ourselves into alignment with this kind of vision of human sexuality.
2: Absolutely, Rito, Do you want to feed into that? Most of our vision of the past is that sex was kind of pushed down. That you know, kind of mm-hmm. ancient ancient cultures didn't really, you know, kind of talk about that or you know, kind of it was or it was all domination. You know, particularly mm-hmm. men do- dominating women. Uh, Song of Solomon it isn't like that at all. It kind of ha- help us understand. You know, kind of why is that the case? Was it different to the culture at the time? Mm. You know, kind of was it you know radical?
1: i suppose there is a radical sense i mean in a in a culture in which marriages were arranged by one's father <laughs> um and and it, there wasn't a like romance didn't seem to be the thing that drove marriage uh marriage alliances but it was more of a social cultural bonding of two families arranged with a transfer of wealth between families <laughs> um yeah this this would be kind of a radical vision um but but exploring that that true nature of human desire and the way God designed us to connect with each other, as you're aware, the, the history of interpretation has been filled with examples of people who've read this book, The Song of Songs, in a kind of allegorical way as a love, love story about God and the church. And I, for a long time, imagined that the reason this allegorical view came up or arose, is because people were embarrassed by how overtly sexual the the book was. But Eugene Peterson makes the point, and I, I think he's convinced me, that people didn't read the song allegorically because they were embarrassed by its sexuality, but rather because they understood sexuality in sacramental ways. They saw the the relationship of husband and wife as pointing to something greater than itself. There's a sort of transcendence to romance that um, that the church has capitalized on through the centuries.
0: Mm. yes and the spiritual and the sexual are somehow intertwined mm-hmm. um yes uh, I want, we need to get on to the Lord Jesus before we run out of time we've got to go yes. we've, got, we've got to talk about the Lord but I, I can't I can't pass by the uh, opportunity to ask you about Ecclesiastes now how does Solomon and all his vaporousness and his transitoryness <laughs> what is he going to teach us about the Amago day mm-hmm.
1: yes the book of Ecclesiastes is such a a surprise to someone reading That's through the fabulous. Bible and it's
0: fabulous. I love
2: it. And
1: used to it, it you, if you're used to hearing the messages of a church context, it's just sort of slaps you upside the face. What is this? You know, the book, if you're reading in the NIV, the book opens by saying meaningless, meaningless, hmm. everything is utterly meaningless. And you think, uh, that doesn't match what I know of biblical theology. So what do we do with this? And many people have tried to explain that by saying, well, this book is preserving the words of a cynic, but we're not supposed to trust his assessment. And they try to say that there's this greater narrator who's responsible for verse one and the last few verses of the book. And so that's the person to listen to and everything in between is unreliable. I take a different approach. I believe that the the voice that we're hearing throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is giving us a a valuable take on life on planet earth. It's not one that's in the form of a prophecy or divine commissioning but rather one born of experience. And I think we get off on the wrong foot if we translate the Hebrew word hevel as meaningless. As you already alluded to, Brent, the the word hevel means vapor. And so this is a metaphor. It's vapor, vapor. Everything is utterly vaporous. So what that's saying is not that life is meaningless, but that the meaning of life is hard to grasp. Vapor exists, right? You can see it coming up from some from a steaming pot of soup. You can see the vapor, but you can't grab onto it and, and hold onto it. And, and in a similar way, we get glimpses of the purpose of life or the meaning of life. We get we have glimpses of pleasure, glimpses of satisfaction, but we can't hang on to it. We can't live in a perpetual state of pleasure or a perpetual state of satisfaction. And so I think that the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to say to us, stop taking yourself so seriously and stop striving for what you don't have yet. And instead, stop and enjoy the journey enjoy those fleeting moments of pleasure those fleeting insights savor them while you have them and 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 while you can and then move on and i think so many of us in western culture live our lives in a quest for something we don't have yet and the author of ecclesiastes is saying that's an empty way to live your life always pressing for what you don't have yet instead stop and celebrate what you do have
0: I just wish Ecclesiastes was taught more often in our churches. And if we could get rid of these, I mean, vanity um, is another. I think the King James Bible set us up for failure there with that one. I'm sorry. With all due respect to its magnificent translation in other parts. But vanity Mm -hmm. and meaninglessness just doesn't capture it at all. Oh, I wish we'd had more time. We could talk on and on about Ecclesiastes. (laughs) I love it. But now, how does the Lord Jesus Christ fulfill the Imago Day?
1: Well, the New Testament tells us unapologetically that Jesus is the image of God. And this is after a long silence uh, on that phrase. We, we get the phrase image of God in Genesis 1, 5, and 9, and then we don't hear it again till the New Testament. So after this long silence, the Bible reopens this conversation about the Imago Dei and says Jesus is the image of God. And I think we make a mistake if at this juncture we say, oh, okay, Jesus is the image of God, but I'm not. And that's the way a lot of theologians actually go. They say, okay, only Jesus is the image of God, and all other humans are aspiring to be like Jesus. And I just don't think that does justice to Genesis chapter one and what it seems to be saying that every human being is the image of God. And so I don't I don't see Jesus as the image of God. I don't think he's called the image of God because he's divine, he's he's deity i i think that the new testament calls jesus the image of god because he's human and all humans are the image of god and so this there's this beautiful thing where the god who is represented by humans becomes human himself so that he can represent himself and of course jesus does this much better than any anyone in history has prior to that time or since and that's the sense in which we need to look to Jesus as our model, not because we're trying to be the image of God and we're not, but because as the image of God, we have failed to live in alignment with our true identity. And Jesus shows us what it looks like to lean into how who God says we are and what he's designed us to do. And when we do that, then all of the glory that Christ intends for us to display is available to us.
0: How should we think about our bodies then in the light of the resurrection?
1: So many people think about uh Jesus resurrection as a singular event, and, and I, I'm not sure why, but uh but there's this sort of widespread lack of attention to the Bible's teaching that every one of us is going to be raised from the dead bodily. So we think, well, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. I believe in the resurrection, of course, but we don't realize that the implication is that we too are going to be raised from the dead bodily, that Jesus, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is the first fruits of the new creation. And so he's showing us what's going to happen to all of us. And so I think As we look at Jesus as the image of God who has become incarnate, he's taken on human flesh, he dies physically, he's raised physically, and he ascends to heaven physically. These tell us that we're not just about to get rid of our bodies so that we can get on with the real business but that our bodies are part of our future.
0: Last question, um, Carmen, and then I'll throw it open to Rito um, before we close. How does the Imago Day help us think about disability, for example?
1: Mm. This was one of the most meaningful parts of studying to write this book because I had been convinced that if we if we say that every human being is the image of God and the image cannot be lost, then it would have implications for disability. But as I dug into this subject more, I just became aware, more aware than I was before of how much um, we imagine, many of us imagine an able-bodied person as the ideal human and anyone who experiences any kind of disability, whether that's physical or mental, emotional, that that they're somehow less human. And it's an insidious way of thinking. And I hope that this book helps people recover the biblical truth that every human being is the image of God, even if they find themselves uh, to have some kind of disability. One of the stories that has captivated me is the story of Moses when God is commissioning him at Mount Sinai, and Moses complains, I can't go to Egypt and confront Pharaoh. I I have a speech impediment. And I believe it's an actual, not just that he's afraid of public speaking, but that he has a speech impediment. There's a physical disability. And God says, who made your mouth? Uh, he, he implies that he made Moses that way. Not that Moses is that way because of sin or brokenness in the world, but actually that God designed him this way. And I think what that's teaching me is that God did not design us to be self-sufficient, independent, able-bodied people, but he designed us for community and interdependency. He had already planned for Aaron to come alongside Moses and help him fulfill, fulfill the commission God gave him. And I think the same is true of all of us. We all have weaknesses, if not outright disabilities. And God is not surprised or overwhelmed by any of it. We, every one of us, is still the image of God, and God will empower us to do the work that he has called us to do.
0: Mm, fascinating. Rito, your
2: final thoughts for Carmen, please. Just just one little thought on, on that is that I think it's interesting that when you have, particularly in Christian communities, when you have people with disabilities as a part of those communities, the, the value that they add to those communities is immeasurable Yes, uh, and the beauty that they're able to bring out in in those communities uh, yes. is just amazing. That you, you you couldn't, the and the words are poor. You know, kind of the shameful things are uh, kind of bring the beauty out in the community some, somehow. Yeah. I don't I don't know how it works, but there is something magical that happens there.
1: Yes, and I think because disability reminds us that we need each other, and and mm-hmm. someone who. Experiences the world in a different way than I do has something to teach me about what matters and about how to be community for each other. Mm -hmm. Just yesterday, I had a minor surgery on my eyelid and I ended up with a patch over one eye. And so I experienced just for 24 hours what a disability might be like to have my sight impaired in some way. And it, it was just fascinating both to feel what that would be like, but also to measure the reactions of others who saw me and. Yeah. And either sort of looked away or s- smiled sort of with pity or asked about it or whatever. I mean, just it, it was just a tiny experience of what that might be like uh, long term. And I think we have so much to learn from each other.
0: Mm-hmm. yes indeed absolutely right Carmen Iams, a fascinating interview I wish we had more time Carmen it was just great um, the new book from IVP InterVarsity Press in the States is called Being God's Image Why Creation Still Matters and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes Carmen thank you and thank you also to my co-host as always Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church Palmerston North New Zealand Rido and Carmen thank Thank you so much.
1: Mm, thank you as well. Blessings to both of you.
0: And to you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash Godstorypodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash God Story Podcast.
1: As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.